Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast, hosted by Renita Ray Davis, licensed clinical social worker, board-approved social work clinical supervisor, and facilitator of the Goddesses of Social Work supervision community. Join us as we travel through the social work journeys told by the Goddesses of Social Work community members, past and present, as they make their way toward clinical licensure. Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. In today's episode, Jessica Thompson has graced us with her presence. Jessica Thompson was born in Germany and grew up moving often as is typical for a military dependent. She originally started college with a focus on journalism, but quickly realized that was not her calling. After dropping out and 13 years of tenure with a Southeast-based insurance company, she resigned and returned to Troy University to finish her bachelor's in psychology and master's in social work. Initially, she set out with a focus on clinical practice with the LGBTQ plus population and a strong interest in couples therapy. But after five years in the profession, she is realizing the truth of how the social work journey will take you to places you did not expect. She started working after completing a practicum with a Macon-based organization, where she served various populations and provided therapeutic services to families involved with the Division of Family and Children's Services, and also provided sex offender treatment to individuals involved with the Department of Community Supervision. All the while, she carried on consulting work for women-focused organizations, of which she was introduced to through her first MSW practicum and allowed her to travel the world. During the COVID pandemic, it was time to return to full-time work and the journey led her to corrections. She has been a mental health counselor at a male prison facility for three years now and anticipates a change in the near future after finalizing her clinical licensure. In her downtime, she enjoys TikToks with her daughter, cuddling with her pets, and being a homebody with her partner. Welcome, Jessica. We're so glad to have you on the show today. I'm so excited to be here. When reflecting on you coming on the show today, Jessica, I remembered that it was you who came up with the name Goddess of Social Work. At the time, I had no idea that it would become this beautiful social work community. And now this informative podcast of other social work goddesses having a platform to tell their stories and hopefully inspire other social workers. And it all started with you. I believe in giving folks their flowers. So I wanted to publicly say thank you. You're welcome. The last few episodes have premiered a few military brats. I heard today military brat could stand for bright, resilient, aspirational, and tenacious. I think that perfectly describes you. Can you speak to how being raised in a military family has impacted you and how you practice social work? Yes, I can. Um, I think growing up in a military family provided some cultural competence. Um, one, there's a lot of diversity in, in the military. You, you know, you move around a lot. You meet people that are from different parts of the world, different regions of the U.S., different ethnic backgrounds, and um, even different religious backgrounds as well. So there's some just having, you know, exposure and relationships with people with diverse backgrounds is certainly helpful. Um, resilience is a big thing because moving around a lot means that I, I'm flexible. I can adapt better. Um, so that that's certainly a benefit. Um, and then just having knowledge of what military life is like um, 
puts me in a better informed place to work with individuals who have either uh, served in the military themselves or uh, were dependents of of military spouses or parents. I know we're going to get into your social work journey in just a second, but I realized just now by reading your bio, most social workers that I talk to, that's their number one destination to either work for the VA or a military installation. That is not what you said you wanted to do, or are you leaving yourself open? I am cautiously leaving myself open. Mm -hmm. I'm leaving myself open. I'm not, at this point, I am not competent enough to work with veterans, for example, Military families, yes, but veterans specifically, no. Uh, So as my competencies grow, that could change. But right now, I don't feel specifically led to work with, um, work for the VA, for example. I hear you. I I did not, although I did my MSW practicum with the VA, that was not one of my goals. I will say that um, I love that you said that you could work with military families. I think that's a population we don't talk enough about. Being a military brat myself and watching other military spouses having to get ready for deployment or station after station, I I love always saying to the military spouse, the military kids, thank you too for your service, right? Because there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into being raised by someone who's in the military. Absolutely. Jessica, tell us a little bit about your social work journey. How'd you get here and where do you want to go? Um. My best friend is a social worker, and I I knew that I wanted to be a therapist uh, as I was contemplating my career change um, about six years ago now. And when I spoke to some friends and now colleagues in the field and was trying to land on a specific focus, I was first looking at the LMFT program at Auburn University, and it's very competitive and very specifically geared. And um, when I learned a lot more about social work, the diversity of the profession, the advocacy, um, the political aspect of it, um, it it spoke to me and, and where I was aligned at that time. And so I came into social work for that reason. What have you learned since being in the profession? It is indeed diverse. Mm-hmm. It, it is very, it is very diverse and just as clinical as any other um, mental health counselor or clinical degree. Absolutely. Do you mind speaking more of the diversity? Are you speaking to the diversity of the clients of the folks who actually work in the profession? Or I just heard it as all of the different things, the diversity of the things that social workers can do. That that part, the diversity of what social workers can do. And people have this, still have this misconception that social workers are caseworkers for defects, period. That is not social work. Social worker can be a case manager, but at a at a master's level, it can it's can be a clinician, a direct practice with so many different kinds of populations. Um, you, and it's not just that, you can, you can work in a hospital, you can work in a kidney, a diocese clinic, you can work in a school as a school social worker. There's just so many things that you can do in social work. I couldn't even sit here and begin to name it all. And that flexibility, um, 
I think is helpful when you are finding your way and maybe also experiencing burnout in one setting and wanting to transition another, which as we know, the burnout rate is, is pretty high in social work. And yeah. Yeah. You know, the burnout rate for social workers post-masters is five years. And so, you know, if a social worker finds that one position is not working out for them or they feel like they're burning out because there is such diversity. I love that you're using that word in social work instead of getting burned out, just explore what the other options are. So how did you explore your options? You have a a variety of different things that you've done thus far in your career. And you are actually one of my first guests who had a focus. And I want to hear if you still do, and I believe you do, how to focus on LGBTQ plus community and where does that fit in within your social work practice? Um, so the first is I no longer have a focus just on the LGBTQ plus community um, as a kind of micro community of sorts because that community exists in every community. Those individuals exist in every population that you can possibly work with. And so you have the opportunity to help clients in that community, no matter where you are. So for that reason, I don't feel a need to focus on that population um, as much as I did. Also, when I was coming into social work, I felt like that population was really, really underserved, as evidenced by me going online and searching for providers that identified competency in that population. When I go online and I do that same search, there are so many more providers who identify that as a competency and a skill or a population that they work with. So it, while it might still be less served than people that are not in that community, um, it is certainly better served than it was five years ago. I, I want to say speak to two things. I recently, probably last year, I do. I am on a platform, and I remember one of my um, LGBTQ plus clients went looking, just like you said, for someone who had, like you said, a competency in that area. And before, when he put depression and anxiety in, there was plethora. And then when he just put those few letters in his search engine, it was me and one other therapist. And so I want to say, I think it's still a need. I'm not saying to focus, mm -hmm. which leads me to my next thought. Just like we were just speaking with the military population, you don't have to work at the VA or on a military installation in order to work with military clients. They're everywhere in our community. So we're serving them just by doing this practice. I just, I do think it's important to state that this is a competency for you because it just, I want to say 2023, it was just this year. One of my clients, um, the options diminished greatly when he just put those few letters in his search engine. So tell us more about your journey. I'm hoping we're going to get into some things. So the journey, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so the journey started. I want to work with this community. I want to work with couples. I want to do couples counseling. I want to help people heal their relationships, their romantic relationships. Um, so I did some I did some kind of macro level social work 
with um, and a women's organization, a human rights organization that was feminist focused based out of Canada. That was my first practicum. And that allowed me to work with people who were um, really in, in settings where human rights were being denied. There, you know, different countries uh, were talking about uh, oppression in Yemen. We're talking about, you know, war-torn areas. So really advocating for and uh, organizing events to support women who were gathering um these were women that were involved in movements. They were they were protesting. They were trying to impact change uh, in, a, in, in an international space. And so I supported that work in that way by basically organizing events like training events, conferences, and things like that. Um, I my second practicum was with uh, an organization that supported um, or had a contract with the Department of Division of Family and Children's Services, and they served. So essentially DFACs, we're going to use the DFACs acronym, they serve DFACs clients and also uh, worked with sex offenders that were on that were under supervision or probation or parole, as some people will call it. And so that work took me in different directions. On one end, I was I was providing services to children who had experienced trauma in some way because they had, you know, they were there was a DFACs case that that was in that family was involved in. And so there were children that were receiving services that I was working with. And then on the other hand, on the um, the weekends, I was working with um, individuals who had been convicted of a sex offense. And I was doing group therapy uh, with those individuals, um, which is a direction that I never expected to go in. Yep. So families that were being served by DFACs, there's an open DFACs case for whatever reason. Um, and I was working primarily with children uh, that experienced some kind of trauma. So trauma focused therapy for children. And I, one, never expected to work with children. I didn't identify children as a population I wanted to work with, but then I started working with children and children are amazing and they are sponges and they're resilient and they deserve everything that they can get to help shape who they will become and who they who they are in that moment. And so I really enjoyed that work. But on the other hand, I was doing that during the week. Um, and then on the weekends, I was serving uh, sex offenders who who were on probation or parole and were mandated to attend sex offender treatment. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm I'm treating individuals who are victimized and then I am I am treating the the aggressor or the the um the perpetrator. Um so that was a very interesting polarization, I guess we could call it. Uh and I never expected like I said to work with children or to work with sex offenders. It just had never crossed my mind. Uh but there I was at at a at a time in my life um where I think I was just placed in that in that place and for a reason. And I just listened to myself and, and I did that. And it was important work. And I went on to do the sex offender treatment for over three years and ended up uh, leading that, that particular group and managing that office uh, somewhat uh, for a long time. And it was amazing work and important work. And it really kind of created a segue for me to go into corrections, which I also did not plan. Uh, at In the middle of the pandemic, I was not able to maintain contracts that were uh, sufficient enough to meet my financial needs. And so I started looking for full-time work. 
And let me tell you about full-time social work without a clinical license. It does not always pay well. And when you start looking at Indeed.com and all these places, you find that corrections is paying a little bit more than everybody else. And if you've worked with sex offenders, you're like, oh, maybe I can just slide on into corrections. We'll see what that's like. And so I did. And three years later, I'm still there. It was a pretty smooth transition. Um, it It is an amazing job. It is very rewarding. It is a population that deserves every service that we can provide to them. And I'm very passionate about it. Um, that's where I'm at now. Oh, Jessica, I love this. And I appreciate the fact what I just heard from you are two things that I hope you'll elaborate on more. One, I remember in the classroom, I would often ask people, fine, go ahead and think about what population you don't want to work with. I always said children. I love children, but I, <laughs> that's not my population that I thrive in. Um, but oftentimes people would say sex offenders and or prison population. And here you are working at in and with those clients that I would say maybe 70% of the folks that I taught said, no, 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 I can never do that. I can never do that. And so when I was reading your bio and knowing a little bit about your background in regards to the type of social work you've done, I was really hoping that you would get into how, talk to the audience about what it was like to work with sex offenders um, especially when that was not a population you were planning to work with and to, and to begin with. What it was like to work with sex offenders was eye-opening. These are individuals who have either just gotten out of prison or they are uh, they didn't have to serve time, which is very few of them, and are you know on probation and having to complete this treatment. It's mandatory. A lot of them experience really big limitations when it comes to work, and so their incomes are a lot more limited than you would think. Yet they are paying fees to be on probation. They are paying the cost of attending sex offender treatment, which was really inexpensive. We had the lowest rates um, within a 250 mile radius, at least. Um, and then they have to pay various other fees. They have to get a polygraph, everyone, that they have to come up with so much money and follow so many rules to maintain their freedom. And a lot of them are very committed to doing that. And so they don't come in wanting to reoffend. They come in with their shoulders slumped down and their heads facing the ground. They are experiencing shame and guilt. A lot of them are, are in denial and won't take accountability. And, um, it was very eye-opening to meet these individuals and kind of understand the, the definitions and what it means to be a sex offender and what it doesn't mean to be a sex offender and what can lead someone to committing a sex offense. And it, it was very eye-opening and it was really important because if I could help an individual meet their treatment goals, they were that much more unlikely to reoffend, and that is the goal: reducing recidivism, reducing victimization. And if I can get them through treatment and get them to meet their goals, then I have done the little part that I can do. They've done most of the work. I can do the little part that that makes the world a safer place. So that was important for that reason. Yes, it is important work. Um, you said that working at the prison 
has been rewarding for you. Would you say that working with your sex offender clients was just as rewarding or was it, are you sticking with it was important work? I can't choose. Which, which no one? one's asking you to, yeah. and I would not ever ask you to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they both, they both are rewarding for different reasons. Mm. Can you speak to the polarization that you experienced working with children on throughout the week that had experienced um, some type of victimization and then working with the perpetrators on the weekend. And what type of work did you have to do to find balance and keep yourself grounded? I had to be incredibly mindful. The polarization, with the, the, one thing that's really difficult about it is sometimes you work with this child who's who's been victimized, who's been sexually abused. And their story is very similar to this story that a perpetrator um, has been convicted of. And it, it's it can be very difficult to sit in a classroom and be leading a group with uh, male sex offenders. Um, and, and there was a woman, women's group too, but they were, it can be very difficult to lead that group knowing the impact on the victims, having seen firsthand the impact on the victims. That can be very difficult, but I had to be very mindful of counter-transference. Had to be very mindful of that. Um, and I, I just had to be seeking supervision all the time. And I did. And I had a great supervisor. I love that. And our code of ethics talks to us or guides us to find and seek out supervision. I don't think that's talked enough about, you know, I love that you had a great supervisor and I am going to lean into what do you think the importance of supervision is as a social worker? And I hope that we'll talk to, because I know you're on the path towards clinical licensure. You're going to be on the other side of that really soon. But even after clinical licensure, one of the things that I'm realizing is you still have to seek out supervision and consultation. So what have you learned about, because sometimes I'll hear social workers say, oh, I don't like my supervisor and I'm still like encouraging them to go and speak to their supervisor, especially with the ones within their agency, because they have the wisdom, you know, that you may not know you need <laughs> to work with those particular clients. So do you mind speaking to the importance of seeking out supervision throughout your social work career? Yeah, absolutely. In the beginning, the most important reason that you want to seek out supervision is because you are just starting out. You don't know everything. You will never know everything, but you don't know everything. You need to have checks and balances that the way you are responding, the things that you're seeing and labeling, that you are on the right track. And when you're not, you need guidance. Um, you need recommendation. You need somebody supervising your work. This, this work can be harmful if you're not doing it right. You can harm people if you're not doing it right. So you, you have to seek supervision for that reason. Um, the other reason you need to seek supervision is because it is a form of support. It's not just it's not just a requirement on a piece of paper so that you can get licensed. It is you need support. That's it. And it's not, I'm not saying that your supervisor is your therapist because they're not. But they are going to observe things in you that you won't see in yourself. And one of them might be, hey, you need to you need to practice some self-care right now because I feel like you're very impacted by what's going on. And I'm noticing these things about you. And 
you know, this, you, you need that. It's important. I think though, that sometimes if, especially my high achievers, if they hear another person saying, Hey, you might need to think of this, or you have you thought to do this or no, don't ever do that again. They're, they're receiving as criticism and, you know, kind of get in their feelings and get their feelings hurt. I, it's not criticism, right? It's like you said, support. I don't have a question there. I guess I'm just saying I would love to see more social workers being receptive to receiving feedback from their supervisors and not taking it as a personal attack. Yes. And that's hard. And, and you know, that can be rooted in all kinds of things, um, not being able to accept criticism. Um, and there are some supervisors that don't deliver criticism in a way that is, is easily heard. And so that, you know, there's two sides to that, but absolutely. If, if your supervisor has agreed to be a supervisor, because they're not generally forced to supervise people, right? It's something they agree to do. It's a choice. Then they're doing it because they are passionate about their field of work and they they want to help people that need supervision. They want to help clinicians grow. Perfect. So we heard where you were, how you got into social work, social work, love that you had a social work best friend. I, I can only imagine the conversations you guys have now. We see where you are. Where do you want to go? Working in corrections with the population I work with, which um, at the facility I work with, they have um, we have mental health levels. So level one is no mental health services. Level two is considered outpatient services. We see them once a month. Psychiatry would be 90 days. And then level three is severe and persistent mental illness. They live in a separate living unit. They have more contact with their counselor, uh, structured groups, et cetera, better services, see psychiatry more often, so on and so forth. Working with severe and persistent mental illness does something for me that I did not expect. Um, I like to say I like working with the psychotic people. I don't know that I'm doing anything for them, but there's something about being able to sit down with somebody that has a severe thought disorder and finding humanity in them and them learning to trust you. And a lot of people don't have patience for that, but I love it. And, and, and it matters because a lot of those individuals are medicated and that tends to be the only form of treatment that they're getting is, is their medication. And there's more to it. There's just so much more to it. Um, but yeah, the, the schizophrenia, the personality disorders are fascinating. I'm fascinated by personality disorders, which you personality disorders, which you see a lot of in corrections. You see a lot of personality disorders. Um, but yeah, it, working with the the severe ones, it, it makes me want to work in a psychiatric facility, which I never expected either. If there were one where I where I live that I felt like would meet my career requirements, I would head in that direction. But at this time, I'm not, I'm not seeing that. At this time, I, I, I want to stay in corrections a little bit longer. Um, I'd like to start a private, a private practice. Um, that'll take some time to build, as you know, and I'm not sure yet. I'm kind of you stuck. Know, I'm curious, Jessica, you know, years ago, I remember, I think I was a social worker when this happened. I've been a social worker for a long time. 
they released the mental health houses, you know, where people were being housed. And so what we saw instead was they were going into the prison system. When I was just listening to you, I was wondering, do you see on the landscape an opportunity for folks like you and me who geek out on the DSM, who enjoy working with, you know, severely mentally ill people? Do you see on the landscape a time or space where folks who have severe mental illnesses, instead of being put in prison, can work with someone on the outside like you or me and live in regular houses? Yes, I see that. I see that. Um, and I, I know of it happening in other, other states. It does come down to politics, unfortunately, um, and where funding goes and how mental health individuals are are treated and how they're sentenced, what county they're sentenced in, um, whether they're determined incompetent and things like that. That is, it, it, come, it can come down to the judge, it, not just the county, not, not state, not just county, but, but the judge. So I see I've actually worked with a lot of people that I truly believe and my colleagues believe should be in a psychiatric hospital. They were deemed mentally ill, but they were sentenced to prison because they weren't considered, you know, ill enough to to serve their time in a psychiatric facility. So I think that where we where where we live, where I live in Georgia, that is probably very far away. And we do provide services throughout the state uh, for those individuals, but there's not a lot of supportive living situations. Um, that we can put them in, those are very limited. But it is possible. And isn't that what we do on the policy level? It's always possible. And mm -hmm. that is what they do on the policy level. They, meaning those people who are called to do that, I am not that person, but I'm grateful for those that are. Yes, we need all levels of social work. We absolutely do. Jessica, tell me about who was your favorite social work instructor or most impactful social work mentor? Her name is Renita Davis. I, I mean that, I'm, you know, I mean that. Um, I got excited about social work. Like I went into social work because it made perfect sense for all the reasons I described. But when I met you, you lit a fire under me about social work. And I have continued to be excited about social work and uh, think of you and quote you often. You were the most impactful Um because you talk about social work in, in a light that is, it paints it for what it is. It, it brings more attention to the profession. Uh, it breaks, you know, stereotypes and challenges, biases, and um, you, it's you. I honestly was not expecting that. <laughs> you know what, Jessica, you know, I have favorite social workers. You're one of my favorite social workers, and I'm so glad that you chose this profession. I remember the first time I met you, you had a button down white uh, shirt on and a pencil skirt and you mm -hmm. were trying to cover up a tattoo. And I was like, why are you covering that up? That is who you are. And one of the things that I hope that we get to do now is allow people to show up as their authentic self. Yeah. And so thank, thank you. you for showing up as your authentic self. You're welcome. If there were three things that you could take with you on this social work journey, what were those three, 
three things be? Three things I could take with me. Um, the first would be thicker skin. I lay awake at night sometimes uh, because I work in a system that is unjust and oppressive and and abusive sometimes. So that wears on me. I, I don't always have the ability to let work go when I walk out the door. Um, that's one thing that I would take with me. Another is more social workers. Um, I, I am in contact with some people that I went to school with, but I wish that I would have maintained more connections. And And I, I want to say that COVID played a big part in pulling people apart to an extent, I think, for especially for me. Uh, but I wish that I would have a bigger gang of social workers. My social work circle is small and I've got some, you know, professional counselors mixed in, but my social work circle, I, I wish that I had maintained a bigger circle and been more diligent about that because whenever I meet a social worker, we jump up and down. It is, there is a different energy between us and um, it's magical. So that's thing number two. And then thing number three, what else would I have taken with me? A little more humility, maybe. I thought I thought coming in, although I knew that I had a lot to learn, that I was just going to impact everybody that I met. <laughs> and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I can't heal everybody. <laughs> it doesn't matter how competent I am. But especially in the beginning, I wasn't healing a whole bunch, a bunch of people. So probably more humility starting, starting out. I love that answer. And you know what, Jessica? I don't know if it was the pandemic or it was just part of my own social work journey. I did not realize the importance of community until I was 20 years in this career. Mm -hmm. And so I love that you said, and if I had known when you were in school, I would have cultivated a little bit better for you guys um, how important it was to maintain those relationships because I don't think I realized the importance of social work community until maybe during the pandemic when we were a little bit more isolated. And again, I think this is one of the reasons um, the guise of the social work community is so important and why this podcast, I'm trying to reach one social worker at a time with one interview at a time. So y'all come and be a part of this community because social work community is absolutely important. And I love that you said humility one of the things that I keep hearing seems to be a theme is that we do think that <laughs> we're just going to go out there and save the world. And we're not. Mm -mm. We're not. I think we, I think the important work is saving ourselves. And in doing that, um, our light then lights up somebody else. Yes. And I thought because I got this, you know, merit award and best academic achievement that I was just God's gift to social work. I, I was not. I was not. You are I, a gift I, to social work, though. I do want to say that <laughs> you, I, you, I. Those of us who do this well, I used to. I've said this before, and I'll say it here. I used to say I never met a social worker I didn't like. I don't say that anymore. But <laughs> I have met a lot of social workers that I do like, and I think the ones of us who do this well, we are gifts. So don't mit, don't minimize that. You are a gift to social work. You may just not be God's gift, <laughs> but you're definitely a gift to this profession and we're glad you're here. Now that you know what you know, what would you leave behind? And I kind of, if you do not mind, can you, can you add the lens of getting the clinical license? You know, 
what are some things that now that you've been on this road, you would kind of leave some thoughts, beliefs, or, you know, ideas behind regarding the social work profession? What would I leave behind? I, I, I remember reading this question before we got started today and, and really struggling with it. Um, I think, I think the, the focus that I had, the focus that I had on what I wanted to do specifically and which population I wanted to work with, I think it kind of held me back a little bit in the beginning. I did become more open-minded, but, um, and I think we all should have a goal. I mean, we're a focus that's important, but, you know, maybe kind of checking the reasons for that and doing some more uh, self-reflection would have, would have been helpful. Um, and then the timeline, I would have left that timeline behind. It did not serve me. I swear to you when I said, when I graduate, I'm going to have my LMSW within 60 days and I'm going to have my license in two years. Cause at the time my clinical license, cause at the time I thought I was going to be doing everything in Alabama and that changed. Um, and then I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to do, and I have not met a single one of those milestones in the time that I expected. And who the hell did I think I was? It Life does not work out that way. It doesn't. So what I did is I put this pressure on myself um, that was not helpful. And every time I missed one of those deadlines that I put in place, I felt disappointment and and you know, a little bit of shame and um, underachievement. And that doesn't serve us at all, especially in social work. That does not serve us at all. I am so glad you brought that up. And I'm so, because shame was the word that was coming to mind while you were speaking. I think that we do put these self-imposed expectations on ourselves. And then we sit in shame when we don't meet it. And you're the only one, not you, but, um, you know, just in general, you're the only one who knew that you had that expectation of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And then here you are sitting in shame. But yet when our clients have expectations and our goals that they're not meeting, we help them like, oh, but you can still do it. But we don't do that same thing for ourselves. We don't. But I love that you're leaving that behind. And I love that you're encouraging our audience to leave that behind as well. Talking about leaving some stuff behind, this is, I think I'm getting to my last question. I'm so enjoying our conversation. I haven't seen you, I think, since before the pandemic. So this was really good to be able to reconnect with you. But leaving things behind, you know, speak to a member, you know, someone listening today who might be feeling overwhelmed, overburdened by just the work that they're doing in the social work profession. What would you say to them to encourage them? Because you spoke of burnout and, you know, we know that it's five years post-masters and having high expectations of yourself and then feeling shameful when you don't meet them. What what is something that you could say to audience members who are feeling are on the verge or if not sitting in the energy of burnout and what can they let go of? A lot of the settings that social workers exist in are settings that um, are understaffed and caseloads are gigantic and expectations are high and um needs are extreme and, and, and sometimes emergent. What I want to say is you cannot do it all. 
And if you try to do it all, you will run yourself ragged and somebody will suffer. You will suffer. Your family will suffer. And what you are doing is you are showing the people that you report to that they don't have to make your job easier for you, that they don't have to hire more people and serve the clients that need to be served, that you can make it happen. You can do the job of two or three people, but you can't. You shouldn't be expected to. It's not fair to you or the client. And so what I had to learn to do is in order to manage my own stress and reduce burnout is to set limitations on myself and then honor those. I communicate those limitations to my my supervisor. And I know that if I honor those, that I'm not going to get fired because I already have a caseload that exceeds what the standard operating procedure says I should have. And if if you want to fire me because I can't meet all these demands, you're not going to replace me with somebody easily or quickly in the setting that I work in. So let me communicate what my limitations are and let me honor those and let me advocate for myself. If you're going to advocate for your clients and you have the skill set to advocate for yourself, and if you don't place limitations on yourself, you will burn out. That was a whole word right there. That was a whole word. And I know I said that was the last question, but going back to the importance of supervision and talking to your supervisor, those are the conversations that you have with your supervisor early on so that they are aware of what it is that you say that you can do. And then I loved how you said, and when I honor what I said, because sometimes we'll say, oh, I told this person this, but... Let me go ahead and push past that boundary. And then you're mad at them and you're the one who pushed past the boundary, right? That's right. And then the other point you made, which was so great, and I've done this and been mad about it, is I've left a job and they have to hire two or three other people to do the work that I was doing. I know, I know. (laughs) But... Being able to say, this is the work of one human being, and then you not passing your own boundary that you set, you communicating that with your supervisor, and one really good point you made, you reading and knowing your standard operating procedure manual, so that, right, you want to speak to that just for a second? Yeah. So when you work in corrections, for example, and anywhere you work, there's an employee handbook, there are guidelines, there's all those things should exist in most spaces that you work in, unless it's a very small private practice that's just getting started. And, you know, that stuff might be in progress. But specifically, when you work in corrections and defects, these are entities that have established guidelines, know what they are, so that you have that to fall back on. This says this, you have these expectations of me here. These are the expectations that I've that I'm going to honor that you have, you know, that you have outlined for me. So that is something important for you to fall back on because those are in place for a reason. Right. And, you know, even when I'm signing folks up for, you know, the work that I do, I one of the pieces that they have to get to me is their job description. What I've been so shocked by is jobs aren't even given job descriptions to them anymore. Right. And so I'm encouraging people not only just get your job description and know what your job description is, read the standard operating procedure so you know exactly what's expected of you. And then you don't go out here creating burnout for yourself and having high expectations and no one but you. 
put those expectations on you because you weren't not, you didn't have informed consent because you didn't ask for what you needed. Right. Mm -hmm. Jessica, it's been such a pleasure. It has. It has been such a pleasure having this conversation with you. And I hope you'll come back and visit the Goddesses of Social Work again. Of course I will. It's been a pleasure for me too. Yay. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. We are glad you were here. If you liked this episode, please come back to hear more stories of the journeys through social work and please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. See you next time here on the Goddesses of Social Work podcast.